the cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on March the 13th, 2009. I always advise newcomers to look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com, that's my website, and you can download to your heart's content hundreds of hours of talks I've given in the past for a try to at least fill in a lot of the blanks of the big picture in history leading up to the present time. And I try and show you how it's all put together, how big forces, but big rich forces all working in collusion are guiding the destiny of the planet and the unfortunate um, outcome at the end. If they get their way, it really will be unfortunate. They want to plan a, a new kind of society and even a new kind of servant to serve the masters at the top, those who have evolved more than the rest, apparently according to their own literature. Also look into Alan Watt Sentinel.eu for transcripts of these talks, which you can download. They're written in the various languages of Europe, print up and pass around to your friends. You can also help to keep me going by buying what's on the website at cuttingthroughmatrix.com or donating to me as well. There's a, a button on the website for that. That keeps things ticking over, and they just tick over. Indeed, sometimes they miss a tick or two. We are bombarded by news, mainstream media. Much of it is trivia. A lot of it is repetition. They've even had programs on news about the fact that they will rehash the same kind of stories years after events and so on when they run out of material or trivial material to pass on to the public. And that gets me back to... To what big players have said in the past, the type of society they would give us at this time. They, they wrote these articles 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Bertrand Russell said that the public would be fed trivia, entertainment and trivia. And it works very well on general public. You just have sex, a sex scandal, and the whole world's talking about it. Or someone in Hollywood with a little scandal, and the whole world's talking about this one little person. Out of billions of people on the planet, they can get everybody prattling on about one little person that's totally irrelevant to anything, while your rights and your freedoms and maybe even your very lives are being taken away from you. It's astonishing how this works. It's an old art, very old. I keep saying that Plato talked about it in the Republic and other writings of his and how they understood it thousands of years ago how to divert the general population and give them trivia, which a lot of them are very happy with, very, very happy with. It's, it's interesting, too, that the billions of the people on the planet all, all at some time in their life will have sexual relations. Billions, everybody, ants, bees, insects, everything does this, but they can focus us all on one little couple or one little person in Hollywood as though it was something incredibly unique. That's all it takes. 
And you wonder why they despise the people at the bottom, those at the top. You wonder why they despise them. Do you really wonder? We're on a roll now. Uh, everything that happened uh, was written about in science fiction years ago, which is just predictive programming because the big science fire authors belong to the Futurist Society, an organization set up and funded by the big banking boys, as kind of foundations, where they select certain people for their abilities. They tell them to write a story around certain little items. And this is what they call predictive programming. And they talked about this next story I'm going to give you after the break to do with genetic manipulation and how you'll have a class society on poor and good genes. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Just before the break I was mentioning how sci-fi writers are chosen, the big sci-fi writers are chosen to write stories in much the same way that H.G. Wells was trained and chosen for his task as a, a propagandist for the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the World Society. He was given information on different sciences and he had to wrap stories around it and bring in the social implications, the fallout of futuristic things and happenings. And after him, many, many sci-fi writers appeared, all belonging to the Futurist Society, doing the same kind of thing. They're well rewarded these characters are guaranteed to be hits as well. It doesn't matter how good or bad the writing is, as long as they can weave a story around certain scientific facts or facts yet to be disclosed to the public. It's called predictive programming. And we get used to the idea through fiction that this will come. And then when it does come, we have no moral uh, questions or legal questions about it. It just happens. It's in society, and that's how things now are. And quite a few years ago, science fiction writers were talking about the, the new types of genetic discrimination there would be in the future based on your type of DNA, etc., family background, history of illnesses, propensities to certain diseases, and all of that kind of stuff. And, of course, the mainstream media would bring these topics into question and say, but no, no, that would never happen in a civilized society. There'd be safeguards, etc., stop discrimination on your genetic heritage and of course those who are wiser laugh at that kind of nonsense and here it is this is in the Sydney Morning Herald business news from Australia and from the national it says here Australians refused insurance because of poor genes by Deborah Smith March 10th 2009 Australians have been refused insurance protection because of the genetic makeup. Researchers have shown in the first study in the world to prove, provide proof of genetic discrimination. Most cases were found to relate to life insurance. In one instance, a man with a faulty gene linked to a greater, a greater risk of breast and prostate cancer was denied income protection and trauma insurance that would have let him claim if he developed other forms of cancer. I like the way they even worded it. A man with a faulty gene linked to a greater risk doesn't mean he's going to get it. So even that in itself is misleading. 
is the findings have led to renewed calls by experts, again experts, eh, bioethicists, eugenicists, for policies to ensure the appropriate use of genetic test results by the insurance industry. The director of the Center for Genetics Education <laughs> at Royal North Shore Hospital, Christine Barlow-Stewart, said research also showed consumers need to be better informed about their rights. Really? What rights? What rights? There's as much right against these characters, insurance companies, as you do against the bankers at the top. They're untouchable. 85% of the people in the study didn't know where to go to seek assistance if they had been discriminated against, she said. Associate Professor Barlow Stewart and colleagues surveyed more than 1,000 people who had attended clinical genetic services about their experiences of discrimination. In a long, complex process that was only possible because of the assistance of organizations and companies that had carried out discrimination, the researchers were able to verify 11 cases of genetic discrimination, and the results were published in the journal Genetics in Medicine. Previous to this paper, only anecdotal reports of genetic discrimination have been available, with some commentators questioning whether or not the phenomenon actually existed. Well, of course, it poo-poo it. Professor Barlow Stewart said. In one case, two women with the same genetic fault linked to breast cancer. I like how they put it to a genetic fault. None of this is is definitely sure in science. It's it's always maybes. But even this, this, this article here is reaffirming the agenda. The same genetic fault linked to breast cancer applied for income protection to the same insurer three years apart. One was denied any type of cover, while the other was offered insurance with an exclusion of breast cancer. The different decisions were justified by the Insurance and Financial Services Association on the grounds of updated scientific information. But I don't believe consumers should be penalized while insurance companies are learning. Learning? They're just making money hand over fist. I added the last part. Professor Barlow Stewart didn't say that. An expert assessment panel should be established to advise in which tests are sufficiently well understood to be used for insurance purposes. There's always things that should be done but never are. Eh? This is one of the recommendations of a 2003 report by the Australian Law Reform Commission, and it still hasn't happened. Well, that's exactly what I've just been saying, and it won't either. You see, insurance is the biggest con apart from banking. It's really one and the same thing. And, and insurance companies loan out more money for big building projects than the banks do these days. They want it all for nothing. They, they hope you just drop dead of something else that's not in a clause somewhere. And people who go into this insurance scam, I, I, I shake my head. You know, you're born to, to, to take your chances. You're born to take your chances on this planet. And what a con to think that money and insurance is somehow going to make it better for you. Take your chances and don't give these sharks a, a cent. It says it's only legal for companies to use this information if they can justify their decisions, and on and on it goes. So now they have this to do with genetic discrimination. Now I've gone through the history of the eugenic societies and how uh, the big Carnegie Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, and others set up the Cold Springs Harbor for genetic research, they were the ones who brought in the census, the national census in the U.S. The British counterparts working for, for, for the Darwin family who set up their own 
uh, Eugenics Experimentation Foundation did it in Britain for the census. And since then, and it tells you right in their own records, the purpose was not to find out how many people lived in the country. The purpose was to find the, the genetic and hereditary problems within families and their offspring to trace them down through the generations. That was the primary purpose of the census report. That was it. Secondarily, it was for taxation purposes, counting heads. That's what it was done for, eugenics, eugenics, eugenics. I keep hammering that until people get through their heads. They're going down a slippery slope because these guys at the top meant business 100 years ago and they mean more business today. Believe you me. And the UK is famous for being the gentleman. They have this myth spread around the world that in wartime and so on, they're good sportsmen. They never, once their enemy's down, they'll, they'll put their hand out, they'll extend their hand to help them up. But it's all PR. Britain has been the most ruthless exploiter of countries across the planet for a long, long time. I should say London, because it's London that rules the country and a good part of the world. And it's the same now with rendition. Rendition it's a term, they love these terms, you see, rather than kidnapping people out of the country for torture, they call it rendition. It sounds cleaner and more hygienic. And they're always denying that they do rendition, and that is true. They get other nationalities or nationals to do it for them, so that Britain is still squeaky clean, technically. And this is from the BBC, the 13th of March, 2009, Binyam, this is a man called Binyam, blames the UK for mistreatment. A UK resident freed from Guantanamo Bay has said he would not have faced torture or extraordinary rendition of her British involvement in, in his case. US interrogators told him this is the British file and this is the American file. Binyam Mohammed, 30, told the BBC in his first broadcast interview he said he wanted to see ex-President George Bush put out on trial. And if there were evidence, former UK PM Tony Blair as well, well, he can kiss that off. He can kiss that off in your wish list for Christmas. The UK says it does not condone torture, but will examine any claims. As I say, they're famous for this. Famous for this. And I read an article about two weeks ago where the head of MI6, again, denied they do this. But then uh, uh, someone who worked there says, yeah, we, we farm it out. Farm it out. The U.S. has dropped all charges against Mr. Mohammed. It's great getting, it's, you imagine getting hauled off to another country, tortured, and all the rest of it. They, they don't find anything as usual, and, and there's no apologies, nothing. It's oops, terribly, terribly sorry, old chap. BBC News reporter John Manel, that happened in Canada too with a fellow here, an engineer. And the RCMP helped the CIA, which came out of the country. BBC News reporter John Manel, who conducted the interview at a secret location, said that Mr. Mohammed looked very thin and claimed to be suffering from health problems. Well, no kidding. Ms. Binyam's Mohammed's journey, Mr. Mohammed, who spoke to the media against the advice of his psychiatrist because he wanted people to know what happened to him, described his return to the UK last month. 
I didn't feel like I was free. And that's what they do. When they've had you in tiny little stand-up cells, and the rest of the day you're on your knees in the sun with your hands tied behind your back. It's called torture, you see. Yeah. And you're, you're deprived of sleep. And they might pull you out and pretend to shoot you with a blindfold on, and then you're led back in again, back and forth, back and forth. Very old techniques. Once they're released, they never really feel they're free. It's like part of their soul has been destroyed. He says, it's been seven years of literal darkness that I have been through. Seven years. Coming back to life is taking me some time. I don't have the regular person's feelings that people have. That's true. You get depersonalized, they call it. The feelings of happiness and sadness, I still don't have them. I'll be back with more after this break. Alan Watt, we're cutting through the matrix, getting away from the usual trivia and the titling stuff that's bombarded our ears for years and years and years by the media. And even an article like this to do with this kidnapping or rendition, as they like to call it nowadays, it's only kidnapping if you do it, it's rendition if the government does it. But even the way that it's written here put shame on the reporters because you could do a far deeper investigation as a reporter on what actually happened, and they haven't. They won't, they won't do that because, after all, the BBC uh, wrote the story and they're part of the British government. They, they get paid all their money from the taxpayer via the government. And this particular man, Mr. Mohammed, said, too, that if it wasn't for British involvement right at the beginning of the interrogations, they, they, they kidnapped him off to Pakistan. And his suggestions were made by MI5 to the Americans of how to get me to respond. I don't think it would have gone to Morocco. I would have gone to Morocco in the first place, he said. That's where they kidnapped him. It was that initial help that MI5 gave to America that led me through seven years of what I went through. The MI5 agent who questioned him had previously denied at the British High Court any suggestion that he threatened or put any pressure on Mr. Mohammed. Well, maybe they should have taken, uh, rendered uh, the MI5 agent off and got him to answer a few questions in the same type of fashion. It's amazing, eh? <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, they're above all morality, you see. The man couldn't lie to save his life, this, this MI5 agent. But by God, they love torturing other people, don't they? And unfortunately, the world is not short of these characters, the scumbags, dirty, dirty scumbags. And they're all done through the strata of society. It reminds me of the the Tammany riots in New York, where the mayor of New York said, we can always hire half the poor to kill other half. Unfortunately, it's true. And there's no amount of thugs can be hired governments when they want to get tough on the public here's an article that's interesting because if you listen to the way it's worded, it's written by someone at the United Nations listen to the terms for nations and so on that they use and this is from, from all places it's the Taipei Times Taipei February the 21st 2006, this came up. 
someone sent it to me. State sovereignty must be altered in globalized era. In the age of globalization, states would give up some sovereignty to world bodies in order to protect their own interests. By Richard Haas. We know who that is. For 350 years, sovereignty, it's straight out of it, this is a UN spokesman. For 350 years, sovereignty, the notion that states, that means nations, right, are the central actors, that's where all, we're all actors in the game, you see. And on the world stage, there's a stage again, this is their terminology. And the governments are essentially free to do what they want within their own territory, but not within the territory of other states, has provided the organizing principle of international relations. The time has come to rethink this notion. The world's 190-plus states, I'll say, nations, now coexist with a larger number of powerful non-sovereign and at least partly and often largely independent actors. And I've read articles before on this is to do with the society, this new world order, what they're bringing in. They're going to bring in the big CEOs from the international corporations, exactly as Professor Carl Quigley said, they were going to do when they make the new system, the new feudal system of the world. That's what's happening right now. So they want to bring them in. It says independent actors ranging from corporations to non-governmental organizations. That's the non-governmental organizations that are funded completely by the big banking front foundations. This is from terrorist groups to drug cartels, from regional and global institutions to banks and private equity funds. The sovereign state is influenced by them for better and for worse and much as it is able to influence them. The near monopoly of power once enjoyed by sovereign entities is being eroded. Because it's meant to be, right? As a result, new mechanisms are needed for regional and global governance that include actors other than the states or nations. This is not to argue that Microsoft, Amnesty International, or Goldman Sachs be given seats in the UN General Assembly, but it does mean including representatives of such organizations in regional and global deliberations when they have the capacity to affect whether and how regional and global challenges are met. In other words, as speak, we are going to put these guys on the boards at the United Nations. And it says less is more. Less is more. Or very Orwellian. Moreover, states must be prepared to cede some sovereignty to world bodies if the international system is to function. This is already taking place in the trade realm. Well, that's already done. Governments agreed to accept the rulings of the World Trade Organization because on balance they benefit from an international trading order even if a particular decision requires that they alter a practice that is their sovereign right to carry it out. No, that's not what happened at all. What happened was the World Trade Organization was set up through GATT. The general public of every nation had no vote in it or say in it whatsoever and a gang of big international bankers said that they wanted it and they drafted it up. That's what happened. They continue here. I love how they keep brandishing democracy, too, when they need to use that word. It says, some governments are prepared to give up elements of subject to address the threat of global climate change. Really? Have any of you been asked about that? You've been asked about the spraying of your heads? Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix. Reading an article put out by Mr. Haas, the UN, talking about the need to even weaken sovereignty even further. He says here, All of this suggests that sovereignty must be redefined if states are to cope with globalization. At its core, globalization entails the increasing volume, velocity, and importance of flows. Within and across borders of people, ideas, greenhouse gases, oh, goods, dollars, drugs, viruses, emails, weapons, and a good deal else, challenging one of sovereignty's fundamental principles, the ability to control what crosses borders in either direction. Sovereign states increasingly uh, measure their vulnerability not to one another but to forces beyond their control. Globalization thus implies that sovereignty is not only becoming weaker in reality, but it, that it needs to become weaker. This is the UN's opinion. Now remember, the UN is a big front organization for the big banking boys that Rockefeller who set it up. States would be wise to weaken sovereignty, be wise to weaken sovereignty in order to protect themselves. So, so weakness is strength for your rebellion. Because they cannot insulate themselves from what goes on elsewhere. Sovereignty is no longer a sanctuary. We know that because they just kidnap you now and torture you in some other country. Because this was demonstrated by the American and world reaction to terrorism. Here's all the pro, the Bush stuff. Afghanistan's Taliban government, which provided access and support to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda wasn't even a network. It was set up by the CIA as people who went into an actual radio site to listen to code words that were sent to them by the CIA. That was in the other mainstream newspapers at the time. This was removed from power. Similarly, the U.S.'s preventive war, when they, you know, when they, when they slaughtered and starved about a million Iraqis to death, you know, preventative war against an Iraq that ignored the UN, and the UN cannot stand being ignored, you know, and it was sought to possess, possess weapons of mass destruction, showed that sovereignty no longer provides absolute protection. Imagine how the world would react if some government were known to be planning to use or transfer a nuclear device or had it already done so. Many would argue correctly that sovereignty provides no protection for that state. Then he goes on about necessity and all the rest of it and, and gives you the usual spiel. That's all it is, a spiel. So they want you to soften it and weaken your, your sovereignty, whatever you've got left of it, and become completely international. And let these boys at the UN... You know, the ones who are very select on who they criticize for slaughtering whom. And sometimes they're absolutely silent when people are getting slaughtered, like people in Gaza. There's never a, a cry for to get an aid out there or, or troops in to stop it. Maybe the UN would get some recognition when they re- regard all equal life as being equal. Until then, I won't bother finishing that. Astounding. It's astonishing. The, the hypocrisy of these characters, utter hypocrisy of them, make you sick. Now, yesterday I read an article about the, the destruction of the family unit. And again, from a person from the United Nations Population Control Panel, who said it was a great thing. It was a successful thing. And it was the end of patriarchy, you see. Now women are free to dig up the roads and and wear boots and stuff like that, and contribute to the taxes, etc., etc. And how the children are having, you know, no wonder with all the stuff they're watching on TV, they're all having children, 
uh, out of wedlock, wedlock's out the door, it's just passe now, and there's orphans and all the rest of it. And he says, that's great, that's a good sign. It's a good sign. Well, in Britain, there was, again, one of these sort of trivia cases they brought up about a, a young 15-year-old boy who was with a girl and, and she was pregnant. So here's, here's the country's answer to it. But you know the answer has got another motive here. And this is from the Mail Online, 10th of March, 2009. It says, schools have brought forward plans to teach five-year-olds about sex following the case of 13-year-old father Alfie Patton. The little Alfie there has probably watched all the stuff that the adults are watching. Well, it doesn't even have to be adult stuff anymore. It's through all, look, much music. Yeah. What do you think much music's advertising? What do you think they advertise on much music? What is the goal of much music, apart from selling the awful stuff they call music? Which is, what do they turn women into on much music? And guys, too, for that matter. So the, the outcome is monkey see, monkey do, and here you go. They're getting pregnant very young. So the schools, right along what Bertrand Russell said they wanted to do, is to get them active in sex. By teaching them sex education, something that wouldn't be in their minds at five-year-olds, because Betty Russell tried this on experimental schools back in the 1920s. He says, if we can get them into pre-pubertal sex, they'll never stay with a partner for the rest of their life, be so promiscuous. So here's the agenda. Schools have brought forward plans to teach five-year-olds about sex following the case of the 13-year-old father, Alfie Patton. Education chiefs in one city responded to the news that Alfie had fathered a child with Chantelle Stedman, who was 15, by deciding to start the sex lessons early. The compulsory sex education is due to be introduced in primary schools across the country as five-year-olds from September next year. But Leicester, which has one of the highest teenage pregnancy rates in the country, will begin the lessons in autumn. The curriculum includes teaching the, the difference between boys' and girls' bodies. Like, they don't know. As I say, let's walk, look at much music. Look at the cartoons they're watching. Have you ever watched the children's cartoons mixed in with all the environmental stuff and the greening stuff and how bad the older generations were for destroying the planet? You get all the sex as well. Ah. But anyway, there you are. There's, there's exactly what Bertrand Russell's wanted. He's, he's got it. He's got exactly what he wanted. And that is the agenda, though. That's why it's happening. Nothing to do with this one case of pregnancy. And it's a big difference between 5 and 13. Can any of you think what it might be? Another story, very important. Now, when I grew up in Britain, the government had got the taxpayers to build up the big institutes of the country, like the gas corporations, electric corporations. In other words, technically and on paper, the public owned it, right? And you put all that money and financing to set it up, iron out the problems, and manage it. And as soon as they do that, you see... They bring in another party, the Conservatives, who then privatize it all and, and give it to their buddies for peanuts. They'd run it into the ground for profits. Then the Labour would come back in and they'd nationalize it again 
and repair all the breakdowns and put new equipment in and all the rest of it. And then conservatives would get back in again, privatize it to their bodies, and again, take all the profits out of it without repairing it. It was like a, an ongoing show. Now, and I saw this in other countries as well. Canada is no different. The Prime Minister of Canada, when he was assuring the Canadians that these nuclear-powered systems in Canada that Canada built at the time uh, was going to give us such cheap electricity that he came on the television ads to tell us to keep your lights on all night long. It would be so darn cheap. And, of course, they've all been privatized once they're up and running. And we're all paying about four or five times through the nose what we should be. And the same thing happened in Britain. I think it was five politicians in Britain a few years ago that put forward a bill together to privatize the water system of Britain. It just so happened that when they left politics, the company they formed were the ones who got the contract, the first contract for owning the water supply of Britain. I think they now call it Grid Corporation, and they're taking water from all over the planet now. One day they will be the, the owners of the water for the entire planet. But here's IBM. IBM is famous. Again, it was all part of the IG Farben group. It was the one who kept all the data in Germany, and I think the Soviet Union too, for prisoners. They used a Kardec system and a number system to monitor you from birth to death, basically. And it's one of the big military giants. It's among, amongst the, the big military-industrial complex. That's why it's always been untouched. And this is from the Yahoo Tech. Yahoo Tech, Friday, March the 13th. San Francisco, IBM Corps wants to get deeply into water. The technology company is launching a new line of water services. Services. Guess who will be serving who? Friday, hoping to tap a new sales game by taking the manual labor out of fighting pollution. Oh, it's for a good cause. And managing water supplies. They want to manage water supplies. IBM says the overall water management services market could be worth $20 billion in five years. Well, I thought they wouldn't end because they want to help us fight pollution. But there's $20 billion involved and plus. The effort is part of a wider role IBM wants to play in infrastructure services. That's everything, folks. Including automobile traffic and power grids, as I told you, is part of the military-industrial complex. In each instance, IBM is trying to persuade utilities and government agencies to overhaul their computer networks and link digital sensors together for better insights. I should add, into their profits. For example, instead of a meter reader from the power company traipsing through your backyard, IBM is banking that one day your meter and your neighbors will feed data directly into the utility's computer network. Well, when they're saying this, they're already setting it up. It's the same for water. IBM says its new services will help water providers become more efficient. It's nothing to do with the $20 billion. It's going to make you more efficient in overseeing ever more precious supplies and responding faster to contamination and other emergencies. That's why they're doing it. The company has been working on a project called Smart Bay with an Irish Marine Institute to develop sensors that are monitoring pollution, marine life, and wave conditions around Galway Bay and transmitting data to researchers. Among the benefits IBM contends is that computers can track floating debris 
that pose a hazard to commercial fishermen. They're worried about hazards and pollution and stuff like that. That's why they go so stinking rich, by worrying about you. This smarter planet theme is part of IBM's strategy to keep making money in a recession. The company's chairman and CEO, Sam Palmasano, said in a letter to shareholders this week that IBM will be aggressive in drumming up business in areas like managing traffic, the way you manage your traffic for the government, power grids, water, food, healthcare, and finance. He vowed the efforts will help Armor, New York-based IBM, grow by getting early starts in areas that will need help for years to come. We will not simply ride out the storm, Palmastano said, Rather, we will take a long-term view and go on offense, so prepare to get ripped off mightily soon. That's what, really that, that's what it really means. Now, another thing, too, is... No, actually, go, I should go to the calls. It's uh, 10 minutes, too. Um, I'll take Bert from Florida there. Is Bert there? Hello, Bert. Yes. Hello, Alan. How are you doing? I'm hanging in here. <laughs> um, I got a question. Um, what's wrong with Jesus Christ? What do you mean, what's wrong with him? Yeah, what's wrong with him? Nothing's wrong. Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is uh, I've listened to a few of your programs and a few things on in- the Internet, and uh, I always hear uh, people referring to um, religion as kind of a... A, a duping of, of uh, people? Well, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll, keep, I'll keep this short because I don't want to lecture. The fact is institutions that are powerful take over every religion and use it for other areas, other, other reasons. And it's to get power, basically. It's to get power. And that's why most of the people in the world get so sick of the, they get sick of the religion or, or the tru- a truth because of the institutions that rule them. That's the problem with it. That's the problem with it, and that will all, that will continue. That will, that will continue. Uh, I, I don't care what institution you built up. If Jesus came back tomorrow, uh, that the following day there would be another hierarchy above it, telling you new rules, new laws, new regulations, and that's the way it's always been. So you don't believe that Jesus Christ is going to return? Well, that's up to you. It's up to every individual. Now, we'll go on to Derek from Philly because I'm not going to have one of these ridiculous conversations. Hi, Alan. Hey. Hello. Derek. You can hear me. Okay. Yes. Um, well, the last caller, I'd just like to say that I personally, when I was first waking up, I became very religious, and I actually got into Catholicism. Yeah. And I found that that was really just a... I don't even know... Well long story, I don't want to really get into it, but I saw that it's all people doing everything. There's no yeah. God involved. All people in almost every church. Maybe there's some good churches out there, but the whole idea of a, of a church is someone else speaking for God, which yes. is kind of an interesting idea. It was interesting, too, and there, if you look at how many Protestant church breakaways, they're in the, they're in the thousands now. As people try to break away and stick to the basic New Testament, but before you know it, they, they, they get into an institutional frame of mind, and, and then they go into getting the power tripping, and then they lose it all. And then another group splinters away, trying to keep it to the basics again, and it always happens over and over. The same thing happens over and over. 
people will follow the group rather than the God. That's the problem. Well, that's that's an obvious point, and it's good to yeah. point out. But as well, if you <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it doesn't even matter. I'll just take a different point. Yeah. Actually, uh, you're speaking of Bertrand Russell. Yeah. And uh, you're speaking about the five to thirteen year olds, mm-hmm. and uh, that was really really disturbing and it seems like we do have a, a common enemy that you know everyone no matter what you believe in mm-hmm. you we we have this enemy and he actually spoke something which was an unveiled death threat and you actually had it in your talk that's and right it, it was the christmas talk on <laughs> two years ago 2007 mm-hmm. and uh you spoke you actually read excerpts from his book yeah about, i forget the names exactly something about science and Yes. Yeah. But he did say that. Yeah, he did say that uh, those brighter ones among society, the children, they couldn't be brought in to serve them and their purpose, but who could communicate to the public. In other words, were intelligent, etc., but they could not be corrupted and brought in to, to serve the world state, would have to be eliminated, he said. Yes, and he actually, he actually used the, the term lethal chamber. That's right. That's right, yeah. So sick, and I don't think anyone's even, I've never even heard that term before used outside of Nazis. So it's interesting, you know. Yeah. And uh, yes. so uh, I guess I'll take it now, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks for calling. I'll be back after this break. I am Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. And there's Nathan from New Brunswick on the line. Is there, Nathan? Hello? Hello, Alan? Yes. Hi there. I just um, heard that conscription of all citizens in the United States between the ages of, if I heard it correctly, between the ages of 16 and 65 shall be mandatory for a period of three months. Thank you, uh, Obama. Oh yeah, well he said that in, in, in his speeches before he was uh, before he went through the routine of being elected. Yeah. I, I never heard of such a thing, and I and I was just speaking with a friend of mine, and, and my friend said, "Why would you think that's going to happen?" And I said, "Well, they do have a population elimination program in place, and what better way to do it than to have everyone conscripted and give them the good old uh, death." Uh, the death and vaccination uh, program, right? Well, that's maybe part of it, but he also said um, in, his, in his campaign that he needed a civilian army within the United States that matches this external army to, put, to fight terrorism. So you know the size of the U.S. Army, they want that inside. He want, wants one bigger, a civilian army inside the U.S., which is bigger than the army they send abroad. Well, there isn't any terrorism happening anyway, but, I mean... Uh, they haven't found a terrorist anywhere, uh, legitimately, but... Uh, oh, yes, they have. Have they? Oh, yeah, it's all of us. <laughs> T- please tell me who. It's all of us. Oh, all of us, yes, I'm it's, sure. <laughs> it's all the civilian population, because we, we're all now the problem. They've told us, you know, one day you might wake up with terrorist thoughts, and they want to give you annual psychiatric evaluations to see if you could have the potential... And some of the eugenicists, the bioethics, the bioethics committees, have said, 
They might even find the gene that causes it. How, does that make you feel better? <laughs> Did you hear about uh, CAD enhancing the recreation trails, spending $20 million to enhance all the old railroad uh, trails around Canada? That's right. And then coincidentally, uh, we have that new, um, uh, what is it, the uh, Army Reserves are, are being mobilized in Canada for Yeah, I read that whole article yesterday and uh, on the radio. Well, and, that's where, yep. that must have been where I heard about it from then. Yep, it gets around, but it's, yeah, they're... they're it gets around. <laughs> it's amazing when you're broke, you can always afford these things, though. Yeah, when we're broke, exactly, and we're not broke either. Okay, good. So um, that, that, that vaccination program, I think I really, I know quite a few military fellows who have come back from Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, they're urinating, uh, it burns. Uh, when they ejaculate, it burns. The women aren't happy with it. It's just... Well, they had uh, articles in, in the papers here um, uh, just a few years ago with Gulf War One. Uh, some of the women in Canada uh, were actually in the newspapers. The, their hair all fell out, their teeth got loose. It was very much like radiation poisoning. Yep. But the thing is, though, some had also had never even gone. They'd all got their shots to go, but they hadn't left the country. They came down with it, too. <coughs> and and a friend of mine, uh, he's in the military. He had 15 shots. Ten were recorded on his medical, whatever they do there, yep. and five were not. And he suspects those are the five that have caused him not to be able to differentiate between cold and hot yeah you see and he's having all kinds of uh, i've talked to some of the u.s troops have phoned me they were told to take certain pills every day the sergeant the sergeant would uh, ensure they swallowed them even uh, but they were never allowed to know what they actually were It'd be experimental take care alan but thanks for calling uh, there's so much so much going on so from hamish myself from interior canada It's good night, Emmy, your God or your gods go with you.